hurt people hurt other people. My advice for someone who who has experienced trauma and wants to get help from a medical professional, it is critical that you vet the professional to ensure that they have the capacity to hold space for that trauma. Because if they can't hold space for their own traumas, they're not gonna be able to have capacity for the patient and it could potentially cause harm. not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general education purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Priyanka is a doctor, she is not your doctor. So we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. That said, Woo. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wally. <laughs> to Thank get you. That is a disclaimer and a half. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're yeah, I think it's great. We've had actually quite a few PhDs and practicing doctors on the shend. I have never had one that is also a professional comedian. Oh, so this is, yeah, this is double exciting. trouble. Yeah, me and Ken Jong, he was unavailable, so you got me. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to dive into just listeners to introduce you. Priyanka Wally is a stand-up comedian, practicing physician in internal medicine and co-host of the podcast hypochondry actor, which try to say that three times fast. Yeah. That's and, pretty good. <laughs> and in each episode, you and your co-host Sean Hayes, which a lot of listeners probably know from Will and Grace, welcome a celebrity guest. And some of the ones that you have, I listen to Kristen Bell, Kathy mm-hmm. Jimmy, Robert mm-hmm. Downey Jr. to discuss some sort of medical story. And what I love is that you also specialize in holistic internal medicine and an integrative nutrition practice, so to speak. And I'm also excited to talk about uh, your experience or knowledge of psychedelics with anxiety and depression, Mm -hmm. which we both suffer from, and also different things like horse therapy and generally the link between health and laughter as a professional comedian, obviously (laughs) a lot of experience with that. So you've been all over the place, Healthline, Cosmo, Women's Health, the Kelly Clarkson show, and now you're here on The Whole View. So I know, (laughs) literally now folks, we're getting The Whole View. I've been around the block and it's all ending here. I'm retiring after this podcast. That's right. In Hawaii, nonetheless. (laughs) This is the homecoming podcast episode. (laughs) What did I miss? What can you tell our listeners a little bit about? yourself? Oh, man. Okay. A little bit about my ethnic background. I'm a Kashmiri Pundit American. That's a sect of people from Northern India. I was born in the United States, but I actually spent some early formative years in Kashmir. A little bit more about the history. There was a a genocide that occurred in that region as early as 1991. And I was actually in Kashmir three years before the genocide occurred. I have a lot of experience with collective 
collective ancestral trauma, working to heal trauma in groups as well. And yeah, I have a lot of experience as like being a brown kid growing up in the United States, in addition to all of the medicine stuff and my performing arts background. Yeah, that's, I would say that's the only, only part that was, that could be added. Way to just jump in. And oh. also, <laughs> no, but I think it's, I think it's really great. One of the things that I strive to do is to bring brevity to things that we need to be talking about all the time. Not that we need to not respect the atrocities that have happened across our entire history. Basically, every human of every culture has terrifying and horrifying stories. And when we don't talk about them, we are doomed to repeat history. So I appreciate that not only do you kind of like openly talk about that, but also deal with it in a healing way so that people can not push it down, right? Can accept or acknowledge whatever trauma has happened and work through it and incorporate in some form your experience, as you said, with comedy. And I feel like you just checked all the boxes when you were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're like all of these things and have somehow made it. It's thank you for all of that. What I, what gives me a lot of inspiration is if we look at historically indigenous communities and how they used laughter to help improve or change the society. What comes to mind are the Pueblo clowns, also known sometimes as the sacred clowns. They're actually jesters or tricksters that come from a religion as part of the Pueblo Indian natives, which are in Southwestern United States. And I use the term sacred clown, it's a generic term, but basically these are rituals that take place where the whole purpose is that the clown of the society, they perform this sort of meaningful social commentary via humor. And the clown's identity is concealed, but basically the sacred clowns of the Pueblo people, their job is to comment on society to change it for the better. And they use humor to do that. And so when I discovered that this existed, to me, I started to interpret this as using humor as a kind of social justice to give a commentary and potentially shed light on aspects of ourselves that that need to change. When I started doing stand-up comedy, it was really the result of being a resident, working 80 hours a week in a very challenging, toxic medical system, which is practically militaristic in the way the residents or interns are treated. I needed space. I needed an outlet. I needed a safe space to just get crazy, to get into a frenzy and just be wild because that was completely unacceptable in the system that I was working in. And I think the universe for that experience because I'm convinced that doing stand-up allowed me to get the balance and to just balance myself energetically so that I could survive residency. And then I realized it was such a helpful tool that I wanted to continue it even after I was done graduating from residency. And that's when I realized like in the spirit of what the sacred clowns talk about, like this is part of just your soul care. We talk about healthcare, wellness, but I think there's some, there's also something called soul care that is really important for being a balanced person. I love that term. Yeah. And the concept of how this came about for you makes so much sense. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that 
toxic experience that you had. And I think it's really important also for us as um, people who go to healthcare professionals to also understand like what that experience was like for them and their mentality to also, I think, potentially have a better relationship with our medical practitioners. So I'm excited yeah. to talk a little bit about that. But first, I do want to talk about just some of the health benefits of laughter, because I feel like we're diving in and we're talking about the benefit that it can have from a societal perspective. And the social justice angle is incredibly important to me as well. But I think yeah. just even at a very, very basic level, can you give us maybe like an overview of what you've seen from a scientific or a medical perspective in terms of how laughter can be good for us. Amen. Yeah. We live in a world where fierce competition exists. Our lives are stressed out. And there's plenty of data that talks about how stress can negatively influence a person's health, their mental health. Laughter is this little antidote to that because scientifically, laughter actually decreases your blood levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, your blood levels of epinephrine, which is also a stress hormone, growth hormones, the breakdown products of dopamine, it literally will scientifically do things to your body that will indicate a reversal of the stress response. So laughter can alter dopamine and serotonin levels as well. And we know serotonin is associated with brain health and mood as well. Don't forget when you laugh, you're secreting endorphins. It's taking, it's literally like taking a small pill that is going to be the antidote for stress, but oh my gosh, it's free and there's very little side effects. I think maybe you could, the only possible side effect of laughing too hard is maybe you could blow a hernia or something like that. That would probably be one of the risks of laughter. It The pros really outweigh the cons and it's something energetically, it's spontaneous. Like you, you could fake it, but I think when you do it authentically, like I'm talking those big belly laughs, like just coming from your gut. It is a release. It feels amazing. And there's a reason people want it. They seek it out. I'm getting just giggly just talking about it. <laughs> One of the things that I love to do when I'm stressed out is watch stand-up comedy. Like yeah. I have a couple of go-to specials or whatever that also reduce anxiety because I know what to expect. And so when the joke's coming, it's my brain is just so happy and gets that. I think it's an emotional release also, right? Like that cortisol response comes out when you laugh tears. There's just so many things that I, I know I have a local group of neighbors and we play Mahjong together, never sober. Yeah. And we have, <laughs> we laugh so hard that we have a joke. A neighbor has toilet paper earrings that like, you know, dabs at her eyes. <laughs> and I always feel better, lighter. I'm a better mom. I'm a better mm -hmm. person when shortly after those nights, because I just feel like everything is better. But I think also it's important to talk about some of the long-term benefits when, mm -hmm. when our stress is reduced, right? If we incorporate being joyful, having laughter all of the time, not just these like spontaneous things, but I think being mindful, are you enjoying your life in general, right? Mm -hmm. We experiencing laughter 
There's also a ton of long-term benefits that I was reading about, including improving immune system. A lot of our listeners have autoimmune disease or Mm -hmm. other kinds of immune responses. Friends, (laughs) laughter can help your immune system. I Um, like to think of it as an adjunct treatment, like whatever you're doing, right? Like whatever your doctor is telling you to do all that, but adjunct treatment, like add laughter, it's a boost. It's a little bit of boost. And we know stress kills, like stress damages your organs. It affects your entire body. And if you can engage in a practice on a regular basis that literally reverses stress, why not make that a priority? And what's interesting is what you find funny may change over time as you change as a person. I know for me, back when I first started doing stand-up comedy and I was in residency, which is a job that is, I like to say it's a neck up job, meaning your brain, like you need to use your brain and that's it. There's very little, if anything, I think the medical system teaches people to not be aware of their body because let's say you're a resident and you're having issues that are bringing attention to your body. Like you need to work, you need to show up. So in residency, it was a neck up job. And the comedy that I found funny was always super cerebral, very much in your head. And then the jokes that I wrote, they were very like calculated cerebral type things. As I left residency and then in my own healing journey, got more comfortable in my body and began to be more somatically oriented, I found myself gravitating towards more physical comedy, like old school kind of clowning um, things, distorting your face, like moving your body in a silly way. And now I, that's that I actually prefer comedy where there's like very little talking. There's a show called, I think it's the just for laughs kind of show where they're just doing pranks and there's very, nobody speaking or like Mr. Bean who never speaks at all. Now I'm like super into that kind of stuff, but that wasn't me like 10 years ago. And so I think it's important to, to notice because you are a reflection like anything you perceive externally is just a reflection of what's going on within your own self and so as you change what you find funny is going to change too it's such a good point and all i could think of was like the three stooges as you were talking and that right, kind, that right. kind of comedy i do not I have oh a, interesting I have, okay i have an aversion to anything that like is laughing at someone like physically, but uh-huh. I to- like my husband loves that stuff. So it's interesting. <laughs> we have plenty of things that we both enjoy laughing at, but it's, it's a curious thing to me that we can have different perspectives. And so that's a great point about it. It's super, it's so pertinent, right? Especially in the world that we live in right now, it's, there's so much division. People are canceling people for just having different perspectives. And that in comedy, there's so much debate about is so-and-so really funny? We hate them. We love them, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, who cares? There's something for everyone. Just chill y'all take a deep breath. Let's do some, just ground yourself for Christ's sake and just get, let people have what they want everybody's at a different stage and there's something for everyone. And, and the, now thanks to social media, there's con there's content up the Yahoo. There's so much content out there. You're going to find something that you find funny for yourself. I 100% hear you. And in the mindset of social justice, I think where I get caught up is I worry that in 
making light or making a joke of something that could be harmful or hurtful to someone. That's where it gets like this gray area for me where I'm just like, eh, I'm not going to touch that. I'm just going to back away slowly and not engage because while I do think that things go way too far in terms of, I don't want to say wokeness because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a mother to a trans child and have a degree in feminism and all these things I couldn't be Mm -hmm. any more woke at the same time I also see how when we can't just laugh about something or let something go how harmful that can be for Mm. our mental health and then physical health right so it's like Mm. this balance of being respectful but also if it's not for you it's okay just to walk away or to unfollow Mm -hmm. or whatever I so appreciate what you're saying I think and this is also part of my journey as a performing artist to create content that's not punching down it or even punching up like why punch like why not just do that and it's been an evolution there's content that but it's like now I look at it it's like no we're throwing it out it's not going out totally you know what I mean and that that has also been a process to have that insight because the jokes I was writing 10 years ago are definitely not in the same lens now post pandemic post me too post everything yeah I grew up obsessed with friends like I loved friends then I watched just a couple of episodes back as an adult. Golden Girls is my go-to as my like late night re- reprieve. If Golden watched, Girls, oh, I Golden love Girls. that. I love the Golden <laughs> Girls. It's embarrassing. It's fine, but I love I also, that. I I also have binged Schitt's Creek and Abbott Elementary and a couple of other things that Golden Girls always gets me but that's hilarious for a while I was like oh let me do friends let me go back and binge friends and I watched a couple of episodes and I was like nope that's not for me anymore like doesn't hold up yeah I totally got what you're saying so interesting I think one of the comedians that I adore that you had on your show Kristen Bell yeah was in The Good Place. Also, I just watched Bad Mom Christmas with my mother this weekend. It was a little little awkward, but also great. And so she's fresh in my mind. And I know on your podcast, I'm going to say it again and hope I do it correctly, hypochondry actor, where you marry this idea of comedy and medicine. Mm -hmm. I think last week on our show, interestingly enough, we talked about medical trauma. Those Mm -hmm. of us who have experienced some something whether it's the actual physical or the emotional impact of an experience having mm-hmm. a negative long-term impact impact on us and then figuring out how to navigate whether it be self-advocacy or anything following in that medical world after trying not to avoid for example going to the dentist if you had like a harrowing experience right like right. how do you move forward and i love this idea of bringing lightness to listeners and their doctors. I know we're going to talk specifically about some of the stuff that you talked about with Kristen, but I wanted to just open this idea that I heard there. So I know you've talked about it before, but also like this concept of as someone who is going to a doctor who may not be aware, for example, that you've had a traumatic experience, how would you recommend people bring that lightness or that comedy or whatever in a way that's also respectful. Yeah. Yeah. So this is such an important topic and I think it's important to look first at the systemic issues. So for example, if one is to see a physician who let's say is not trauma-informed, 
right? That non-trauma-informed physician is a symptom of a greater underlying systemic issue. And so just to be clear, most physicians are traumatized. According to the American Psychiatric Association, there is a suicide rate in America of one physician suicide per day. The physicians have the highest rate of suicide compared to any other profession in the United States. What does that tell us? Doctors are sick, okay? And th this is supposed to be the community that's healing people. So we have a serious problem on our hands. So in order to approach things from a trauma-informed perspective, hurt people hurt other people. My advice for someone who, who has experienced trauma and wants to get help from a medical professional, it is critical that you vet the professional to ensure that they have the capacity to hold space for that trauma. Because if they can't hold space for their own traumas, they're not gonna be able to have capacity for the patient and it could potentially cause harm, which is something that happens all the time. It's not an uncommon story. Vet your doctors, get second opinions. If you don't feel safe with a physician, find a second opinion, find another physician, okay? And one of the perks that came out of the pandemic is now telemedicine is much more readily available. Even if you live in a small town in the middle of nowhere, you can still now get access to physicians that might be not in that town thanks to technological advances, right? So this idea that, oh, there's no one else in my town, there are ways to work around that. So I, I talk about this. I have a one-woman show that I wrote a talking about my experiences in medical training and how when I was a medical student, I found the system to be so toxic, I got severely depressed and at one point was suicidal. To me, that tells me that there is a serious systemic problem here. And there are certain points where it's sure, you can bring a little lightness and laughter, but if the person isn't trauma-informed, like you need to also account for your own safety in this situation. Because laughter, as much as I love laughter, there's a time and place for everything. And so this would be one of those situations where I say, understand that most physicians are traumatized and you need to really vet them to make sure that they can, they have the capacity to handle whatever it is that you're sharing. Sorry, I know I would have been so much nicer if I had given you three one-liners to tell your physician <laughs> so you could try and make it work. But I don't think that would honestly be the ethical thing to do because yeah. we're dealing with a very serious issue. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm curious how you would recommend someone vet a physician. Okay, the first thing is when you share something vulnerable with them, let's say this is an in-person visit. Let's say you share something really vulnerable, really scary. Basic human things, do they make eye contact with you? Do they make sustained eye contact with you after you share that? Do they acknowledge or reflect back what you just said? Do they use statements like, I'm so sorry you went through that. That must have been really hard. That would have been, that's an example of a statement that indicates that they're acknowledging what you said and they're not just typing on their computer and saying, oh, uh-huh, and going on to the next thing. Are they creating space for your vulnerability? And the reality is right now, most physicians are in a medical system that only allows them 10 to 15 minutes per patient. They are tired, they are overworked, they probably haven't slept well, maybe they have a substance abuse issue. There are a lot of barriers to allowing physicians to have 
the capacity to create space for that. But if they can do those things like a sense of safety during the visit, are they attuned to you? Do you feel safe around them? Are they reflecting back what you have shared? Those would be examples of someone who has enough empathy to hold space. But it's an ongoing dialogue, right? Like safety in a medical visit is an ongoing dialogue and it constantly needs to be reestablished. Yeah, those are great points. And I can totally think of my own experiences working with medical professionals that either do or do not do that and how very different my lived experience with each of them was. I think the hard part, as you mentioned, is on the front end of before when you're trying to make an appointment with someone, trying to learn, reading all the reviews online and trying to figure out, do I want to go see this person? And then I know I recently switched my doctor like two years ago and my very first appointment, I was just really clear with them. I want to meet you. I want to talk to you or we go into all of this stuff. And I think it was, it's also helpful for them to know what your expectations are, right? Because sometimes Mm -hmm. doctors think that you have an expectation that you're going to come in once and then you're going to be seen for four, for things that need to really be like four different appointments versus Mm -hmm. I just want to come in and see if this is a good fit. Let's talk about my medical history and see where we are. I think for me, one of the things that I would say is if someone can't find time to do that, like Mm -hmm. that, that immediately for me is like, nope, if they can't see that's an important thing or their schedule is so busy that they don't have the 15 minutes to sit down and have that conversation, then it's not going to be a good fit, which sucks, especially if you live in a small town and your options are limited, but I will, I'm a foster mom. And so I deal a lot with government provided professionals, be they mental and physical. And the experience that I have with going through state provided resources versus advocating for and getting therapeutic services that are out of pocket, so to speak, for the government are night and day in terms of the support that we get. Because I'm sure that those professionals that work directly with the government are, as you say, like overworked, underpaid, overwhelmed. Like they're dealing with incredibly traumatized foster kids and who else all day long versus somebody who can really, you know, text with me in the afternoon when we're having an emergency and be there in support and say, okay, yes, you can come in today for blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I just think it's hard to box someone out and say, this person is a bad doctor or are they in a bad circumstance or... It's my view. It's my view that most people that go into medicine, it comes from a compassionate place where they actually want to help people. (laughs) They want to be of service. I I hope I'm right about that. So it's like when doctors are bad actors, if you will, genuinely think it's because they're hurting inside. They're suffering and they don't know how else to handle that. And so I do want to offer sort of compassion, but I also want to name a very important point that it's a privilege to be able to choose the right physician. It's a privilege to be in a position to like shop around. There are millions of Americans who who don't have those kind of privileges. And I do want to just name that, that we are speaking about a scenario that is assuming a bit of privilege. My my sort of view, my my offering of, okay, the system's so, there's so many issues here. What can we do? I talk about this in my one-person 
show that maybe if we start from where, how we train doctors in medical school, because that's the foundation, that's their first entry point into being a doctor in the medical system, the Western American what medical system, why don't we start to change the way we train them? I remember when I was being trained in med school, they wouldn't really feed us. I'm not kidding. Like we would get a $5 stipend for food and we'd be working 80 hours a week. And I was thinking if someone was working and the least you could do is offer them like nice, good home cooked meals on the house, the least you could do. For me, it's like the way we treat our trainees is a reflection of the values we hold in the system. So it's like, why don't we just start with some basic things? Let's get like the Maslow's pyramid, correct? Basic. Okay, fine. You won't get enough sleep during residency. That's fine. But at least I can give you like some food. That's a basic need. Let's feed our med students. Let's feed our residents so that like their bodies are at least nourished as they do this very challenging work. So for me, my view is, look, if we can change the way we train people, that'll eventually change the system. But there's clearly like lots of the government needs to get involved. We need to, to subsidize a lot of stuff. But yeah, it's important to name the privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you named it, which is what I was trying to allude to, which is like the experience that we have on our, the rest of the family's insurance is entirely different from the experience that I have trying to make appointments for our foster child and the limitations that I'm faced with in terms of availability of the medical professionals that I can find for them or the if glasses break, can't have any more for two years, they need glasses. Yeah, that's you like know. your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so just basic things like that. And I, it is absolutely a privilege to be able to select. It's also a privilege to be able to have insurance or to get medical care or to not be so traumatized that one avoids it, right? There's all these things that we as people who need medical care and then as you say, the medical professionals are, are also going through their own traumas and changes. And I, I would also say that the system itself is absolutely a problem for medical professionals. The reason they're overworked is because they're not adequately compensated for the work that they're doing because of the way that the insurance paperwork requires everything and the negotiated rates and blah, blah, blah. And the idea of going to someone who is outside of that system is not feasible for most Americans. Like it is impossibly expensive to pay out of pocket or then try to submit it to your insurance later or whatever it is. There's so many things that people do from the natural health perspective that most Americans just can't do. Yeah, Yeah, I appreciate that perspective and I think it's important. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive because laughter isn't the only medicine. With their new Just Calm and Probiotic, I feel and see a difference. You can save 15% site-wide at justthrivehealth.com by using promo code WHOLEVIEW at justthrivehealth.com. You've probably heard me talk about their probiotics for years. I use and recommend them to all of my skincare clients because your gut health impacts literally everything inside and out, including your well-being and your mood. And now Just Thrive has a brand new product that represents a new approach to uplifting your 
body and mind naturally with Just Calm, which has been clinically proven in multiple studies to help reduce perceived stress, balance cortisol, improve sleep quality, and even encourage focus and flow. Just Calm contains B. longum 1714, which in studies has been found to modulate resting neural activity that correlated with enhanced vitality and reduced mental fatigue. Yes, please. And it modulated neural responses during social stress, which may be involved in the activation of brain coping centers to counter regulate negative emotions. Uh, all about it. I take mine with their spore based probiotic, which has more human clinical research than any other probiotic out there and has a survival rate in your gut greater than 99.9% of probiotics in the market. Plus, it's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. And Just Thrive Probiotic and Just Calm make the perfect one-two punch backed by real, scientifically proven results to help you be your best self. And right now, you can get 15% off this dynamic duo when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout. To try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code THEWHOLEVIEW. And that does include bundles and subscriptions to stack your savings. This conversation reminds me of one of the episodes of Hypochondriactor where we interviewed Maim Bialik, who hosts Mm. Jeopardy and was from Big Bang Theory. And this was before she was still an early actress and was a student at UCLA, didn't really have insurance, or if she did, it wasn't like the best plan. And she needed to have some teeth work done. And the, the, the treatment was like she needed to get an extraction and I'll never forget in the show she's the insurance would cover the extraction but they wouldn't cover the implants and she's what am I supposed to do just walk around toothless they're my teeth like I need them and I was just like yeah that's crazy like why would you cover an extraction but not the implants again it goes back to what do we value yeah And that is not only her experience. Like I would say that is sadly um, something that I've heard a lot of, like when you need beyond just like preventative or cavity care, the insurance coverage on that becomes few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't blame to, to piggyback off of your point. It's like people are looking at alternative treatments. People are looking outside the medical system now and rightfully because in so many ways the traditional medical system has failed them so of course we would see upticks in other modalities traditional chinese medicine naturopathy traditional chinese medicine naturopathy homeopathy chiropractor you name it it's a laundry list now of things because people need solutions and the medical system has caused problems. Now, I'm not like completely down on the medical system. Let me be clear. There are some things that it's really freaking good for. If your appendix bursts, it's great. It's going to take your appendix out and you're going to do fine. If you break a bone, it's also a great system. Like life-threatening stuff. If you're in a major city and you have small stroke, like you're going to be okay or a heart attack and given most cases. So there are some benefits to the system, but when it comes to chronic conditions, preventive care, there are issues most certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the issues that 
is plaguing a lot of people post-pandemic. So set aside the horror stories of the medical professionals who have experienced this incredibly traumatic experience of working through the pandemic and all of that that it entailed. We as a collective society are coming out of post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever it might be from the pandemic. And there is a huge uptick in anxiety and depression and mental health resources, right? Like people can't, I'm one of my children, I'm on a wait list for a therapeutic service for my child. And it's just a really high. And I think um, in our family, years and years ago, we actually lost a brother to mm, uh, anxiety so and depression. Sorry. Thank mm. you. Fortunately, we've had a lot of time to heal. My kids grew up knowing him. And so we feel we look on the bright side of having had him in our life for a long time. Mm. However, depressants and addiction is something that runs in the family and coincides with a lot of depressive and anxious behavior. And I think yeah. I think about those people who are in the world today who are feeling anxious or depressed or things are changing in the world and that feels uncomfortable for them and totally. turning and turning to alcohol, which is really a depressant, only making things worse, or other maladaptive behaviors. And I was really curious that one of the things that you have experience with is psychedelics as it relates to dealing with anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the other side of that coin for me is I'm super hesitant and resistant to bring in drugs because I've seen how <laughs> catastrophic that can be for someone who is having anxiety, depression. So I'd love to hear more about like the science behind it or how that works or doesn't work for some people. And I know you talked about this on your show with Kristen. So I'll put those links and references in the show notes for our listeners, but... Yeah, yeah. So I think in order to explore this appropriately, it's really important to first go back historically and give credit where credit is due. So it's important to remember that psychedelic plant medicines such as psilocybin mushrooms have been used in indigenous cultures and tribes for many thousands of years. There, there are the references to psychedelic mushrooms goes back even as far back to the Bhagavad Gita, which is a ancient Sanskrit Hindu text where they reference mushrooms as the word soma. I want to be really careful to use the right terminology because this term drugs is really something that has occurred since the 1960s here in the United States, thanks to the war on drugs, which was an effort created by the government to basically ensure systemic inequality stayed in place and to racially target certain groups. So I prefer to use the term medicine in honoring of the indigenous usage of these plant medicines. So these medicines, basically, they do have therapeutic value in the right context. So just to give some context, I was at UCSF helping run the psilocybin trials for depression. It was part of a national trial for, called the USONA trial where people were randomized to receive either psilocybin or placebo, and they all had, they met the criteria for major depression. And many of the participants had either tried medications and failed or tried therapy and failed, and were still per persistently depressed. The results are still being tabulated, but I can speak anecdotally to what I witnessed, which was basically individuals that met the criteria for depression, and then after one high-dose psilocybin session, no longer met the criteria for depression. And the 
these participants were followed for at least, I think it was 12, 12 weeks, but don't, don't quote me on that. Cause I, I, there could be a fact check on that. So this is something that is happening actively in research. You can go to clinicaltrials.gov to find other studies that are looking at psilocybin. And there are multiple other studies that are out there as well. So I think it's important to understand that the, in the study that I was involved in and in a lot of the research about using medicines to treat anxiety and depression or psychedelic medicines is that there is a therapy component involved. So it's usually called psychedelic assisted therapy. So for example, the psilocybin that was worked with at the research lab that I was involved with, there were two facilitators there who were trained to do psilocybin assisted therapy. And so that is an important part because I agree that these medicines are not for everyone. I don't think it should just be given to whoever. And I do have concerns about the way they are used. And I do think it's critical that they are used in the right set and setting. And when I use that term set and setting, that is a term that basically indicates that when these medicines are used, they are used intentionally with a purpose. There is some sort of teaching or insight that is looking to be gained. And there's also either a guide or someone overseeing to ensure safety so that when you're entering a state of non-ordinary consciousness, there's a container that is holding the space, no harm is done. I think that's absolutely critical. There's going to be more and more research, but I also just want to name that indigenous cultures, including the Native Americans who have worked with peyote and still continue to, have been able to safely use these medicines in ritualistic settings for many years. No, it's super helpful. And because I hear or read about them from websites that just want to click baby titles and right. kinds of things, <laughs> and it makes much more sense that it would be paired with a therapeutic session that could potentially get to, I imagine, deeper held traumas that aren't coming to surface that can when you have that um release, right? When you're a little bit more relaxed or more open to that. And I am blown away that the results that you saw after just one session, that's incredible. So I hope that is a tool that can be used properly from medical professionals for those who can benefit from it. And I think I'll be interested to see over time, what comes of that? Because I do know from personal experience how very problematic substance abuse can be to try to mask those feelings and then it just gets worse and worse. And that is not in a therapeutic way. That's not in a helpful sort of way. Technically, the results still aren't yet out yet. They're still analyzing the data. Again, I do not think these medicines are for everyone. I think that it's not something that everyone should or can experience. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the idea of physicians needing to have empathy. And one of the things... <laughs> this, like, novel concept. Right. It's, just, it's hilarious that we're actually, like, dissecting it. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's turned into a thing. It's, it's a cliche. So apparently you're supposed to be a nice person if you're going to help people. And how often do you see on TV or movies or whatever, like, this joke about the bedside manner wasn't that great. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah, think yeah. It's, I think it's kind of permission for doctors to 
to detach. I imagine mm. that it's traumatic to lose patients and you need yeah. to at some point detach a little bit, which it's right. in an emergency setting entirely different than someone that you're going to for chronic illness, so to speak. Mm. I know for me as someone who is an empath, it was incredibly enlightening or I don't know, it, I had a lot of connection to when I was listening to Kristen talk about empathy and you talked about imagining that you're in this bubble and uh, oh, you, didn't right, use, right. you didn't use the word boundary, but it brought up this idea of a boundary for me. And she was saying that she imagines cutting a cord between her. Oh, right. Her. I remember. And I actually had this moment. I was listening to Dr. Lisa Damore. I don't know if you've heard of her. She has a podcast and wrote the book Untangled. And she deals uh -huh. a lot with teenagers where she explained teenagers, but not only teenagers do this thing where they emotionally dump. And for <laughs> me as a parent, like they walk away and they feel lighter and better. And they're like, Oh, I got all that in my chest. And now like, I'm physically holding all of their problems. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Oh gosh, what do I do? This is, they have so many problems. Let me fix their problems. But really like all they wanted to do was just talk about their problems and they're right. done. And she talked about this idea of physically, visually handing it back to them and being mm -hmm. like, okay, thanks for sharing. Now you can have this back. I'm going to set it on the floor. And it was really helpful for me, but it brought up this idea when I was listening to all of this come together and I wanted to get your take on this yeah. idea of self-sabotage. Like if we're an empath, are we dumping those things on ourselves? Someone isn't necessarily trying to give us all those emotions, but I know for me, I often absorb them. Even if someone's mm -hmm. just like experiencing something negative, myself sabotaging myself by like bringing in those emotions myself when they're not my mm. worry about. And it brought up this idea. I know this is a long get, but I promise I'll get there of this movie, Luca from Disney. Oh, I saw that. You know? Yeah. It's um, been a while. It's been a while, yeah. but I totally saw it. I liked like it. I remember liking it. So the main character, when he has these like bad thoughts or self-sabotaging so thoughts, so to speak, he names them. And in his brain, he calls them Bruno. And he says, Silencio Bruno. Oh, right. He's basically telling like the bad thoughts to shut up. And I've started doing that with my teens because I realized kind of full circle and listening to Lisa's book and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, what's happening is my kids have these like bad thoughts and then I'm taking them on and I have all this empathy mm -hmm. and it's problem, blah, blah, blah. And so instead I now make jokes with my kids. And when they're starting to talk about, oh, I don't think good thoughts about myself, whatever it is, mm -hmm. I, I always just now shout obscenities along the lines of Silencio Bruno. Like I, I'm like, Shut up, Bruno. And it wait, so do you tell your kids to shut yes, up when they start? Okay. But I say Bruno, but so they've seen Luca. And so I'm like, you need to tell Bruno to shut up. Bruno's sabotaging you. And we I, and I curse because it always makes kids laugh when you as a parent curse with them. Okay. Um, and it's like this immediate release of those emotions that they're feeling, if that makes sense. Mm. Yes, I tell my kids really what I tell them is to shout, to tell the voice, yeah, to shut yeah. up, right. tell Bruno to shut up instead of saying Silencio Bruno, which is Disney's very polite way of saying it. I say it in a different way because I have teen, but I'm curious because specifically this idea of empathy and self-sabotage and self-talk, all kinds of comes together when we're able to break it up with a laugh, right? Like mm. If I'm able to say, this thing and it laughs and then they tell their brain and then like literally it's like the thoughts are gone like they were never there because we've cut it off with some mm. with a different emotion does that make sense yeah it makes total sense so that's one way to do it i have a very different 
kind of view. Like, maybe don't take your kid, tell your kids yeah. to shut up. That's one way to do it. But again, so one of my teachers, Carolyn Shola Arewa, who's the author of Opening to Spirit, I once talked to her about empaths and specifically like Dr. Judith Orloff's work. She wrote Empath Survival Guide. And I literally asked my teacher, Shola, the same question. I was like, I'm absorbing all this stuff. And she actually shared with me a view that being sensitive or susceptible to other people's energy is only as effective as you allowing that energy to impact you. And so my, she told me that when, when we are around someone and our energy gets impacted because they're sharing something, what's really going on is that there's something within us that's out of integrity, that's getting triggered and activated. And that is what's being awakened as opposed to the energy leaking into us. And so she taught me that actually like, we're not leaky. It's either we allow or we don't allow. And I'm reminded of a, a Sufi quote by Rumi, who in so many words talks about how emotions are like visitors. And when they show up at the door, you should open the door and let them in and let have tea with them until they're ready to leave. Again, another one of my teachers, Gabor Mate, talks about how what we resist persists. So if these quote unquote negative thoughts are showing up, there's some kind of energy or character behind that, whether it's Bruno it's or whoever, you can name it. Maybe it's 10-year-old Priyanka, two-year-old Priyanka showing up, right? Like somebody is showing up, someone is getting activated. And I have found that when we silence them or cut them off, they only grow stronger, like they come back. And so for me, in the work that I've done, because I've struggled with negative thoughts, or I listen to people's problems all day, and I also feel the impact of that. And the practices that I have found to be helpful are twofold. One is that if I'm seeing patients all day, I get this thing where my left hip starts to ache, and I know when that happens is because I've now carried and absorbed all the stuff. I will go outside and put my feet on the ground and I will visualize letting go of the stuff that I'm carrying and creating a clear line between what's mine and what's someone else's. And I literally send that energy into Mother Earth because Mother Earth has the capacity to hold that much more than I do. That's the first thing I do. And then the second thing is I engage. So if the negative thoughts show up, I get really curious. Who are you? What? Where are you coming from? And then I ask the million dollar question, which is, what is it that you need? Who's speaking and what is it that you need? And I speak to that part. So like a great example of this, even last night, I got caught in this, this like funk in my mind. And I started to notice that I was getting a lot of negative thoughts. So I stopped and I was like, wait a minute, I was fine just a minute ago. And now all of a sudden something triggered me. I'm getting all these negative thoughts. So I had to sit and I had to be like, okay, who is that? What, who's showing up? And I, and it was a younger part of myself. And at that point, then I had to engage in that younger part of myself and say, okay, what is it that you really need? And then give that 
younger part or whoever the character is, what they need. And it could be a blanket, sleep, food, rest, running around, whatever. And I found that to be a little bit more sustainable than just, I've tried the whole like Silencio Bruno thing. And for me, it doesn't work because the, the thoughts just come back. I found by engaging and getting curious, there's a little more peace in the whole situation. That's yeah. just my, that's my take on it. No, I love that. And I think that there is room for both. I think my personal right. experience with traumatized foster youth is it's not necessarily always the right time to figure out or dig into a particular trigger. And oftentimes we know who that person is or why that's coming up and we're already therapeutically working on it. And so part of it is, hey, remember, we're not letting that person or that memory or whatever it is rule our thoughts anymore. So it's mm-hmm. a... I do think that when you've done the work, as you just said, because it's it can't be in a vacuum, you can't just push down your emotions, absolutely. And at the same time, if you are doing that work and these things continue to creep up for you, sometimes it's habit, sometimes it's breaking that cycle a little bit that needs to happen. And I found that laughter is a great way to do that. It's also laughter is a great way to get my children to stop being cranky with me when I'm having them do chores and stuff like that. It's so much easier for me to turn on a song and do a goofy dance and embarrass them to get them to do what I want versus yelling at them. Totally. And an amazing tool. (laughs) Full disclosure, you are talking to someone who literally Literally right before this podcast was like jumping around and literally dancing to like, like really like strange music. So I get it being goofy, laughing, playing, God, playing is so important to mental health and playing can come in all sorts of forms and ways. It's not just like something like interactive, like improv, also just even writing creatively is a form of playing and you can do it by yourself. So playing is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I have taken much of your time before we depart. I like to always offer my listeners some positive, actionable suggestion that they can take away and be of service to work on themselves. I think you gave some really great options as it related to the mental health perspective of grounding and working through what are your needs and some of those questions. Have any others that you want to add to that list that maybe someone walking away today could implement in their life to improve their health? Absolutely. So I am a big fan of somatic therapy or any kind of therapy that's not talk therapy per se, but therapy that's working in the body. If you have the means to work with a somatic therapist, that's fantastic. But if you don't, if you're on a budget, there's a lot of really great stuff on YouTube that you can search like somatic practices on YouTube. There's a type of exercise that you can get on YouTube called trauma releasing exercise. There are videos where you can basically teach yourself how to tap into your body to release energy that's pent up. Every day, the stress of life, we store that energy in our body. So I would definitely check out different somatic therapies, check out TRE or trauma-releasing exercise. And if you can establish care with a great somatic therapist, I would encourage you to do that as well. I love that. I was not 
aware. Of course, it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. But I've heard of that before, but it hadn't occurred to me that would be something that I could do myself or with a partner or whatever at home. Oh, totally. And it's free. It's like free. It costs nothing. You literally just need a place. You can do it on your bed. So you don't even need like a yoga mat or something. It's, oh, and it you can do it for like two minutes, 15 minutes. And come on, that's um, a good deal, folks. Come on. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm ready to, I'm ready to do it myself. Yay. Um, yay. All right, listeners, I want to thank you for listening to the show and we'll be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, which is the best place to ask questions too. If you've loved the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support the show, but so is leaving a review and hitting the follow or subscribe button in whatever app you're using so that others can find us as well. If you'd like to keep in touch with Dr. Wally, I'm going to put her socials on our show notes, but you can also go to apple.co slash hypo to access her hypochondry actor podcast, which is released weekly. And you can also find her on Twitter and Instagram at Wally Priyanka. And again, I'll put all those links in the show notes for you, as well as references to things that we've talked about through the show. I've got a ton of research-based articles if you want to learn more about how laughter can be physically good for you, but hopefully you take our word for it, as well as some of the things that we've referenced and talked about. And again, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate your willingness to be open to growth and through your own personal change. No one is perfect, especially not me, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Thank you, Dr. Wally. Amen. Thank you so much, Stacey. This was so much fun. Yeah. Thanks for being here. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.